The church is the greatest hope of the world. The world's a tragedy right now. The world's a mess. You know, whether you just follow world events or you follow politics or whatever you follow, doesn't really matter. I think it's easy to see that the world is a mess and it's getting worse by the day, right? As far as we would understand it. Uh, it it's a difficult time in the world to, to live. It's a difficult season. It's weird because the world is more wealthy today than it's ever been in the history of man. There's more opportunity. There's more whatever. There's more things at your fingertips than ever before. I mean, I don't even have to write sermons anymore because I've got AI. All I got to do is pl plug the verse into, that's not a joke. I, do, I still write my own sermons just so you know, but, but I, I will confess, uh, I, I, I teach in our Indiana School of Ministry. We have a number of uh, students that are joining. A couple new ones are going to go this fall to Indiana School of Ministry, and I teach in November. And uh, uh, I had to rewrite the study guide and the test and everything because uh, I changed the books that I use. And I went ahead and tried Chat GPT. I think that's what it's called. And I said, write me a study guide for this book that I'm going to use. And it was awful. <laughs> so, so I ended up having to do it myself anyway. So not as good as people think it is. But I'd say the church is the greatest hope of the world. It's the greatest hope of Europe. It's the greatest hope of South America. It's the greatest hope of Tanzania where we'll be in a couple of months ministering to pastors and teaching them and showing them how they can build great churches in their villages and their towns. It's the greatest hope of America. It isn't a political figure. It isn't an ideology or a movement. It is the church of Jesus Christ that is the greatest hope of the world. And it has been since the day of Pentecost when it was born. There's not a thing that's ever come along that's been more of a hope for the world than the church. It's the one entity or institution or enterprise that has never died since the first, since the first century. It has kept up and kept going. I love reading church history. I love the ebbs and flows of church history. I love the moments when God poured out his spirit in a powerful way and a whole city was changed or a whole nation was changed. And I say that because of this. I think it's going to happen again. I believe it's going to happen again. In 2019, Eli and I, uh, young, beardless Eli, <clears throat> I think he was an eighth grader, and we took a trip to Slovakia, and we were going around, and it was like February, so it was cold, and we were going around and visiting, you know, some ministers and some pastors and looking through the, the Roma people, the villages of the Roma, very, very outcast, very marginalized people, uh, very, I mean... It's, it's really sad and really ugly. Uh, you, wanna see, you wanna see true ugliness of one race towards another, go see the Roma in Eastern Europe. It's just ugly. And uh, we're, we're, in this, we're in this village and uh, our guide goes, hey, there's a church here that meets in a house. They don't have a building, they meet in this house. And so we went into this church building, this house. We're sitting in this house and little by little, we're just sitting there eating snacks because the people brought snacks. And when snacks are out, we eat them, right? Especially Eli. And, and uh, so we're eating snacks and hanging out and there's like seven or eight of us there. And over about the next 15 minutes, 75, 80 people show up into this house. I mean, it's a little house on the prairie. No, not on the prairie. It's, it's a little house. And we're sitting in this house and we're sitting in the kitchen and you almost can't tell how many people are in the house because they're back in the, in, in the living room behind us and then there's a, like two or three bedrooms off the back there. It sounds big, but it's not. We're talking bedrooms like Mark's office right here, okay? Like the, we call it the office. If you've ever seen the office, it's really a closet. We're talking 
no, no space at all. And so the, the house is full of people. And so a pastor gets up and he gives an exhortation and all through the house you're hearing, amen, hallelujah. I know those words in Slovak because they're the same ones that we say, right? So I can recognize those. And the pastor's sharing and just kind of echoing through the house. I didn't know where everybody was. I didn't know what they were doing. And then we all stood up and we started to sing. We started to sing, hallelujah, hallelujah. You know that one? Okay, nobody joined me, so I didn't know. And the presence of the Lord filled the house. And all over the house, it, it, it's like, I look at it and I tell the story because when I think of what Acts tells us the, new, the, the first century church was like, that first church that met in homes, that were, that, that, I mean, they met in the temple as well, but man, they lived their life in, in homes together. I felt like this is what that was like. It was a powerful illustration to me of what it was like to be a believer in the first century. Here I am in a, in a, in a church, in a house, in a rundown, persecuted village. But these people sang with passion and God. I mean, like honestly, they put a lot of us to shame. They lifted their hands and their voices and they worshiped the Lord in spirit and truth. And then we prayed in the spirit for a while. Well, I was praying in the spirit. I assume they were praying in the spirit and not Slovak. I don't speak Slovak. We prayed in the spirit. We called on the Lord and we prayed for their nation and we prayed for the Roma people and we prayed for the white people. We we prayed for Europe that there'd be a move of God. I was moved by the passion and the spirit of these people. And I think that when we look at Acts chapter two, we see a similar kind of community, very, very similar, if you will. Now they're meeting in a home because they have no ability to build a building. They, in fact, in Slovakia, the Roma are not allowed to own property. It's illegal for Roma to own property, so they don't own property. They might can rent a building if they can find someone kind enough to give them use, but very often these churches end up in homes. And I just want you to know, the spirit of God and the moving of God in the Roma people is exploding. It's exploding. There's revival happening among the Roma all over Europe. All over Europe. While us white people are stiff. I've been in the white church, I've been in the Roma church, I'd rather be in the Roma church. The spirit of the Lord is powerful. Now, I'd rather the churches be together. That makes a lot more sense to me. But I think that in Acts chapter two, as we come to the end of this chapter, we see some indicators of what a healthy and vibrant community of faith looks like. One that is impacting the community. One that is moving with the power and the presence of God. One that is having an impact on the people that are around it, that live near it. And so I've only got three points, but here's the three characteristics I see in Acts chapter two. We're gonna look, everybody get your notes. If you didn't get your notes, raise your hand real high. We'll get them to you. I got ushers somewhere, maybe, or what do we call you people? Floor host, that's what it is. Raise your hand real high, we'll get you the notes. Acts chapter two, verse 42 says, all, everybody say all. All All the believers. I think we should do it again. Everybody say all. All. Can I just say what I'm about to tell you only works if it's all the believers? 
You don't get to pick and choose the parts of the kingdom in the church that you engage. The first century church, what made them so impactful was that it was all the believers. Got some hands over here, maybe? I th- I'm helping you out. All the believers. And here's the word, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. It says that the believers were devoted. Well, what does it mean to be devoted to something? Give all of a large part or a large part of one's time and or resources to a person, an activity, or a cause. Now, I'm going to ask rhetorically, what are you devoted to? Based on the definition, like we could just pray right now and go home because examining to what we are devoted reveals a lot about what's in our heart. If you're devoted to something, then you give great amounts of time and or resources, money and energy and whatever your resources are to that thing. In fact, one of the definitions that I found is consecrated. That there's a consecration that happens when we are devoted to something. And I know, I know humans can be incredibly devoted to things in their life, can't they? They can be incredibly devoted to sports teams. They can be incredibly devoted to work. They can be incredibly devoted to losing weight. How many of you are sick of the people that post all the stuff about losing weight on the internet? (laughs) Bless the Lord. If that's you, I'm sorry. So, So what is God calling the church to be devoted? What are the things that we should commit our time and energy to? Well, I mean, this is like the easy sermon, way to write a sermon, because it tells us the four things that we ought to be devoted to. You could have wrote this sermon. I'm surprised Chat GPT didn't. It says, one, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. You got to remember what the apostles were teaching in those early days would eventually become the New Testament. They were writing, if you will, verbally the letters that they would write and the doctrinal papers that they would write that became what we know as the New Testament. They did not have the, they couldn't get up and say, let's turn to the book of Philippians. You know, they didn't have that option. They had the law, they had the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament books, they certainly talked about uh, how Jesus fulfilled those prophets and certainly as new people came in, they had discipleship uh, taking place where they would help them understand, but they were literally writing the doctrine and the narrative that would become the New Testament. They were living it, I'm, I'm a little jealous because they were living it in real time. They didn't know the end of the story. Next Sunday, we'll study Acts chapter three when Peter and John healed the man at Gate Beautiful and they said, so, I mean, great theological promise, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Do you know when Peter and John walked by that guy and he begged for, for money or whatever it was he asked for, they didn't know how that was gonna end. They were writing the narrative as they went. That's incredible to me to have that kind of faith. They, the church, I think the church can again live by the apostles' teaching. I'm tired. I'm just going to tell you my, my view. I'm tired of self-help preaching. 
I'm tired of churches that just want us to have a good time. In fact, I read an article, I shared it on my Facebook page if you're interested. I read it just this morning. I saw it last night, but I didn't read it till today. And this, this article talks about how uh, every denomination and every church group around the world is declining in, in effectiveness and, and membership and whatever, except the Pentecostal church. The Pentecostal church is an anomaly among all believers. Did you know right now there are 650 million Pentecostals around the world and growing by 15 to 20% every year? Why? Because there's something about this spirit-filled life. There's something about what the apostles taught us and shared with us about living and walking and breathing in the spirit of God. It changes things. Here's an exciting thing for you. Did you know that around the world, there is 136 million Catholic Pentecostals? I love that. Why? Because God doesn't care what your denomination is. If you're welcoming to him and you open your heart to the Holy Spirit, he will fill you with the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter said, right? If you confess and believe in your heart that God will save you and he'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. There's something powerful that comes out as we live. I think we can live again in the apostles' teaching and know the word of God and live the word of God. They continued in they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Second, it says they were devoted to fellowship. And this is the word that I think came out of the Jesus movement. It's the Greek word koinonia, or koinonia. I don't know how you say it. You figure it out. And what it means is the share. How many of you came out of the 70s movement? You know, that was like a big deal. But yeah, come on now. You, come on, you Christian hippies. I know. I know. <laughs> Thank you, Keith Green, right? I mean, come on. What does it mean? It means that we're sharing our life together. So guess what? And I'll get to this in a moment, but when you're just a Sunday morning believer, you're not living sharing your life with anyone. I'm just gonna let that sit just a moment. If you're only a Sunday morning person and you slip in and slip out and go live your life, you're not living in devoted to fellowship. Well, but I've been wounded by the church. Who hasn't? Well, I don't know how people will receive me. Well, welcome to the life. I mean, like welcome to the New Testament humans, right? That's who we are. We're humans. Is it a risk to live in Koinonia? I don't know how to say that. Is that right? Thank you. Is it a risk to live that way? Absolutely. Absolutely. Will you maybe get hurt? Yeah, because, you know, we're human and somebody will do something wrong. I'll do something wrong. I'll, I'll disappoint you. I'll not live up to an expectation. I'll do something. And if that, you know, what fascinates me about Christians is we, we go to a church and we're part, and it's not going to church, it's being part of the body. It's being part of the body. You with me? Being part of, not, not like a, a redheaded stepchild on the side. Can I say that? I don't know if I could say that. On the side that just sort of tries to kind of connect when you feel like it and uh, yeah, maybe I'll jump in there, you know, or come when you're in crisis. What I've learned is that a lot of believers, in this is an American phenomenon, okay? It's an American phenomenon. And I'm not throwing stones at you. Please don't be mad at me. I love you. I'm so glad you're here, okay? But... 
We go to a church and we try to get involved in the church and then the enemy knows that we're human and that everybody else is human and so somebody will say something wrong or somebody will do something wrong and we'll get offended. And then what do we, what do, we do? We leave. And we go, we go down the street and we find another place to worship and we think, we think the grass will be greener at the Baptist church or at the Presbyterian church or at the Methodist church or at the other Pentecostal church or what we just, we have this idea that that's how, that's how it should be. How many of you, how many of you honestly in your gut, like rhetorically, how many of you honestly in your gut think that's the way God planned it? That actually the Holy Spirit is cool with that. See, here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. I'm way off topic today, but here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. He says, it is the Holy Spirit who sets the members of the body. You know what that means? You ain't got no right to come here or stay here unless he's setting you here. So people will come to me and say, hey, I'm going to come to your church now. I'm like, great. We want to have you. How's the church you left? Have you had that conversation? Have you, because the Bible also says, live at peace with everyone, like make it right, do the right thing, have the right moments, the right conversation. And I, I can't, I don't force people, but I sure ask them, go make sure that that's right and have the guts to make the appointment and do it face to face. So look, I get it. I'm not everybody's cup of chicken soup, okay? I'm not gonna soothe everybody's soul. So if you discover, that was funny, wasn't it? If you, if, if you discover this is not the place for me, there, that's okay. I'm not mad. We've had, I, since I've been here, there's certainly been a few people leave the church, and it really made me sad because nobody talked to me. Nobody came and said, hey, you know, you're kind of cool. You wear Hawaiian shirts, but we, we don't know. We don't know about, you know, we're struggling to connect or we don't know about this. The ones that have, we've been able to have incredible koinonia and moments where we could see what the Lord is saying and what God is saying. Because you know what? I'm not jealous over you. You know why? You're not my people. I mean, you're my people, but you're not my people. You're his people. Right? If you're his people, then I have to trust that the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. So if you need to not be here, I'm, I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit is saying that to you. And if you need to be here, I'm also going to ask that the Holy Spirit is telling you to be here. Or we've got no business walking together. But when we walk together in that kind of fellowship, we have to be devoted to the fellowship. We have to be devoted to one another. We have to be devoted to the success and the, and the advancements, at least discipling-wise and theological-wise and living on mission and figuring out your calling and being who you're supposed to be. We have to do that together. You're not supposed to figure it out yourself. So I, I just want to say, if, you, if you're here, and maybe, maybe it's my fault, but if you've been here and, or you've come here because you were wounded or hurt, and because of that, you're holding back from being part of the koinonia. Can I just ask you lovingly to stop it? To forgive, have conversations if you need to have conversations. Let the Holy Spirit heal that wound. You know why? Here's what I've always said. You know what I, I kind of believe it. It's not in the Bible, okay? I think if you have animosity and... and um, 
unforgiveness or whatever towards another believer, when you get to heaven, before you get in, you will get in a padded room with them and God will say, work it out. I got no biblical evidence for that. <laughs> Do you know that the Old Testament says nothing pleases the Lord more when brethren dwell together in unity and in love? Well, if you don't let me dwell with you, I can't dwell with you. If you don't let other people dwell with you, you can't dwell. Does that make sense, what I'm trying to say? We've got to press in. It was a mark of that church. The third thing was they shared meals. I'm not going to talk about that too much because we're really good at that part. <laughs> but I think it means share, they shared meals apart from the, like if you share meals with people uh, that are fellow believers in the church, you know, on the, on the fifth Sundays or whatever, when we have meals in the foyer and that's on main street and that's the only time that you do that. That's not what they mean. They meant that they like live life together and share meals. They had people in their home. Remember what Paul said, you have people in your home because you never know they might be an angel and you're entertaining an angel. I can tell you, I've met most of you. You ain't angels. Okay. You ain't angels. <laughs> and neither am I. Ask, ask my wife. But I do believe that part of that eating meals together is opening our home to people. Do you know we live in a society now that we don't do that anymore, like on a large scale? We don't have people in our homes anymore. We're bit, you know why? Because we're busy. I don't think it's because we don't like people or don't want to do it. We're just busy. So I, we've, had, we've been invited to many people's homes, and there's probably still a few people we haven't made it yet because life has been chaotic. It's chaotic. How many of you live in chaos world, right? And so there's this idea that in order to fulfill that part of what the first century church lived, and it's, principle, it's a principle, right, to eat together, share fellowship and eat together, which are often together, like they go hand in hand, then we've got to get past whatever it is that's keeping us from inviting people in our home. It better not be where they come from or what they look like. I mean, I'm believing best case scenario here, right? That it's, that it's busyness of life and, it's, and, and you need more margin. It better not be what color they are or what nationality they are. I can't tell you how thrilled, I, to, I told you already, but how thrilled my heart was to see all the nationalities and all the different kinds of people here this week. So it was incredible. And those people live in our community. We should invite them to our home. And the last one is prayer. And around here we say prayer is our priority and, and we want to live that out and that's why we pray Sunday mornings at nine o'clock and I'm gonna beat it until it's dead and then I'm gonna beat it some more. Because if we wanna be like the first century church, we wanna have the effectiveness that they had in their life and in their ministry, we're gonna to have to emulate some of the things they did and what they were devoted to. One of the things they were devoted to was prayer. And they're not talking about your personal private prayer life. They're talking about a corporate time when the people of God gather together to pray in the spirit and call on the Lord. It's what they did. Probably they did it daily, at least in the early days. These were the things of God. When we say we want to know the things of God or we want to be about the things of God, these are the things of God. It's the apostles' doctrine. It's fellowship. It's sharing meals together and fellowship together that way. And it's prayer. It's calling on the Lord together. It's what we are 
to be devoted. The second thing is this. Not only are we determined to be devoted, but we must commit to being committed. How do you like that? I couldn't think of another C, so that's what you got. We, thanks, honey. <laughs> we commit to being committed. Here's what committed means. Feeling dedicated and lo- dedication and loyalty to a cause, activity, or job wholeheartedly dedicated. You are dedicated with loyalty to a cause, activity, or a job. So here's what the Bible says. All of the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. How many of you would like that? Shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. So I think it's important to say what this verse is not saying, okay? Because you if you go Google stuff, you'll find anything. So I just want to say what it's not saying. It is not calling Christians to live in communes. I just, I just got to say it, right? There's a cultural thing that was going on. I don't know how, I mean, they, they lived a lot of life together. I don't know if they slept in the same house or like how that worked out. But this is not a call to Christian communal living, okay? It's not telling us prescriptively that that's how the Lord wanted to set his church up. It's what they did contextually because it brought great effectiveness to what they were doing. And I'll show you, I'll show you what I mean here in just a, just a minute, hopefully in four minutes and 37 seconds. I will say that in church history though, many, many people have chosen to live in Christian communal living and been very successful at it. There have been instances of that throughout church history. I think of people like the Desert Fathers, and I think of others in early uh, ancient Christianity that really lived that way. But again, culture is a little different. We have to contextualize it. The second thing it's not saying is that God is a socialist. And this is out there, and you need to understand that this is not saying God is a socialist. Do you know why? Because all of the giving was voluntary. In true socialism, and I don't want to get into socialism, but in true socialism, giving is coerced, not voluntary. It is required. Are you with me? So I want to say that because I don't want you or any of your friends to be like, well, God was a socialist. You know, look what what Acts 2 says. That's not what it says. They gave freely. How many of you know when you give freely, the Lord gives back and honors you? Amen? In fact, the Bible says don't let anybody give out of compulsion or because they were sold a bill of goods or talked into it. Let every person decide in their own heart how they should respond to the needs of the the body. You with me? So I just want to cover that. So what were they committed to? Well, first, they were committed to the consistency in relationships. They were consistent in their relationship with one another. There's the, and we talked about it a little bit already, but there's this lack of commitment in relationship today that we feel. But in that, church, in that church, and I believe the way that God wants it to be is that we would be consistent in our relationships with one another. That means we are consistent in our care for one another. We're consistent in our concern for one another. We're consistent in our love for one another. Now, sometimes love means we have to have hard conversations. 
right? Yes, pastor, that, that's what it means. If you have a child and you are any kind of worthy parent, you understand you have to have hard conversations. So it's the same in the body of Christ. If we're going to be consistent in our relationship, we're going to deal with the things that are difficult. All over the epistles that the, that, the, that the apostles wrote, it says things like this. If anybody rescues a brother who is falling into sin and coming, you know, just, just sinking in sin, they have saved that person from death. Well, how many of you know that's a hard conversation? Have you ever had a loved one or a friend or a relative sinking into destruction, killing themselves in the world that you had to have a hard conversation to try to pull them out? And can I just say, sometimes that's successful and sometimes it isn't. The Bible says if they don't respond, if they refuse to repent, if they, just going back to the pride and arrogance thing, if they decide to have pride instead and they refuse to yield to the things of God, we are to cut them off and treat them as an unbeliever. That's hard to say. I'll probably make it on TikTok now. Yes. <laughs> it's hard to say that. It's hard to live that and do that. Why does it say that? Because the Lord knows that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And if we don't start calling each other out when we're offended and we're letting that offense get into a root of bitterness, when we don't start having tough conversations when a brother or a sister is drifting from the faith, that person can infect you or others. So it's important that we live in consistent relationships with one another. It says that they shared their resources. Some of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my ministry is when believers rally around a family that's in difficulty, a family that's struggling, whether that's financially or with their kids or whatever, and they pick them up in greater ways than I'm going to pray for you. Sometimes, well, we should always pray Jesus said we should always pray and never lose hope. But sometimes what our brothers and sisters need in those moments, certainly they need our prayers, but they really need our care and our action. And sometimes a $50 bill. So what am I asking you to do? I'm asking you to listen to the Holy Spirit. I'm not, let me, let me say it this way. Do you know that in the first century, up until chapter six, they had no, they did not have like, um, like a, like a program for loving. So like, uh, here's what I'm saying. A lot of Christians wait around. Well, if that's something we need to do, then pastor will create a program and then I can be part of that. I'm just saying, be Jesus to people. I'm just saying, you don't need my permission to go, man, I feel like God wants me to go talk to that person and go talk to them and say, hey, what's going on in your life? Am I okay? What's going on in your life? The, God, the Lord just said this to me. What, what's happening? Today in prayer, someone came up to me and said, can I pray for you? I'm like, oh God, please pray for me. And I prayed exactly the things that I've been saying to the Lord. It was powerful. Why? Because they listened to the Holy Spirit. Do you know he's in you and he can speak through you and work through you? Okay, I won't beat the dead horse. So I'm just saying, share resources as the Lord leads and as the Lord enables. And the last, the last part of that is sharing life with people, wins, losses, good days, and bad. It says, it says that they were together in one place. They shared everything they had. They even sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. And I'll show you something really interesting here, here in just a second. The last thing is this. Persevere in practice. 
So I want to remind you, commitment. Look what it said. Commitment is a feeling of dedication. A feeling of dedication and loyalty. Do you know what practice means? The actual application or use of an idea, belief, or method. It's not, it's moving beyond a belief system. In fact, we could sit down tonight, we could get coffee today, and we could talk about the things of God, and we would pontificate about the, what we want God to do, and what we see in the world, and oh, you know, I want people to be disciple, now I want people to reach, whatever. We could have all these wonderful conversations we have, but to practice them, you can tell me all day long that you care about lost people, but until you practice Reaching lost people, you're just blowing hot air. I didn't get a lot of amens on that one. You could tell me all day that you love our missionaries and you care about the things that they're doing in the world, but until you put your money where your mouth is or get your rear end on a plane and go yourself, you're blowing hot air. See, practice is the application of what we are passionate about or what we're doing. So here's what it says in verse 46. They worshiped together in the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and they shared their needs with great joy and generosity. Look how they shared their needs. With great joy and generosity. So I see three things here it's telling us to do. One, practice corporate spirituality. They met in the temple. It says they met every day. We're gonna start having church every eat. No, we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna do that. But that, but that context, some of you would be like, yes. Some of the pastors would be like, no. But, and it's not, again, it's not prescriptive. It's principally based. But we are to meet together in corporate spirituality. Hebrews chapter 10. And let us not give up or not neglect our meeting together. Some people, look, some people were doing that. Uh, in the first century, they were already giving up that opportunity. But let us encourage one another and all the more, or especially as the day of the Lord is drawing near. Can I just say now's not the time to not come to church? The average churchgoer, I mean, there used to be like, what is that? Is that me? I'm not doing it. I'm just looking at the sound guy glaring at him. So, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Uh, there used to be a day where you would get like awards for perfect attendance. You, ever, you, you guys remember that? Especially to Sunday school. Like if you came to Sunday school, you'd get, a, you'd get perfect attendance to Sunday school. That's, that's probably Naren. I think it's Naren. That's what? Hello? Okay. So there used to be that day where people would, uh, you know, come and they'd be perfect. The average churchgoer uh, attended church 48 Sundays a year. Do you know what it is today? 20. 20. Why? Because we have so many other things that we are putting in the place of the Lord. I want you to be careful with that. It's something they were committed to. Then they were committed to semi-private spirituality. They worshiped in the temple. That was all the whole lot of them. 
But they also met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They got together semi-privately. They did communion with one another. In fact, it would, communion would not have been experienced with three or four or 5,000 people in the temple. They would have experienced communion in the context of their homes together. Now, our culture is a little bit different. That's what they did. But the point is that God has not only called us to a corporate spirituality of a large group, but he's also called us to a semi-private spirituality where we gather with other believers for the things of the Lord. I want our connect groups to be places where prayer happens and where people are filled with the Holy Spirit and people are, are, are discovering their calling and like all the things that we would ask God to do here are happening in our semi-private moments. Does that make sense? They did semi-private spirituality. Then they practiced, and I think it's practice, the joy of the Holy Spirit and they practiced generosity. For some people, generosity comes naturally to them. It, 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 it's a normal thing of their life. For other people, that joy, that spirit of generosity is something that they have to, have to work on. So I, I think there are four ways that God wants us to be generous. One, attitudinally. It's a real word. Be generous with your attitude. How many of you can tell when somebody's not being generous with their attitude? Be generous with your, with your attitude. I'll say it this way, err on the side of grace, err on the side of mercy, err on the side of love, err on the side of people. Be generous with your attitude. Be generous with your finances and your resources. Be generous with your gifts and your talents, even when the need is outside your expertise. Be generous with your lives. Here's the greatest part of this whole thing, I think. What happens, what happens when a community of God lives with devotion, commitment, and practice? What happens? Verse 43, a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miracles and wonders. And in verse 47, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. What's the results? A deep sense of awe. They had this sense of awe of the people of God. They were living John 15 when Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. They were living that out and they were seeing the incredible atmosphere that was creating for the church. They, they lived in awe of what God was doing in the community. That led to miracles, signs, and wonders. That led to great spirits of praising and worshiping God in spirit and truth, whether in the temple or in their home. That led to favor with all the people. The Bible says they had favor with everybody. Oh, you need to pour a new parking lot? We'll do it for free. Hallelujah. They had favor. That, that, may, that may have been prophetic, Steve. We'll see. They had favor. But the greatest part is that many were saved. Many were saved. They went from 120 to 3,000, went from 3,000 to being added daily. Most, most scholars believe by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, when they are distributing food to the widows and we're seeing Stephen persecution begins, the church had grown to five to 8,000 people. It was a mega church. 
I want you to notice that the people being saved wasn't because they had great PR, because they were doing evangelism incredibly well, because they had great organization and great communication, because in fact they didn't. It wasn't because they had great strategy. It wasn't because the disciples, the apostles, were learned people who knew theology and knew, always knew what to do. It was because they were devoted. It was because they were committed. It was because they practiced the things of God that attracted the world. And the world said, you know what? There's nothing like this thing around anywhere. I've never seen anything like this. And I want to be a part. It's been a long time since our world said that about the church. Could it be that it's because we've lacked in our devotion? Could it be because we've taken a sideways seat to our commitment? We've been committed to everything else except the things of God? Could it be that we haven't put into practice the very clear principles of the first century church? What if we did it again? What if we became devoted again? What if we became committed again? What if we became practicing Christians? You know what I believe? I think signs and miracles and wonders would happen again. I think all of a sudden, the fire marshal would like us. That's an inside joke, but all of a sudden, these people would like us. All of a sudden, the world would be like, wow, you're really showing us what it is to live in community and to be loved. I want to be loved like that. And I think maybe the church becomes a place where every single day people give their heart to Christ. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound incredible? Well, guess what? It ain't a thing that the Spirit does. It's a thing that we do. We decide to be devoted and committed. We decide to put into practice the things that God has given us. Father, I pray that you would help us do it. I don't want us to go through the motions or just talk about it anymore. I'm tired of talking about it. I'm tired of just making it a thing, God, that we share about and hope for and dream for. And like, like we sit around and kind of wait for the Holy Spirit to come and zap us with devotion or zap us with commitment or zap us with practice. God, I pray we can't do anything about any other church, but I pray Connection Point Church would become a church devoted to the things of the Lord, committed to the things of the Lord and putting into practice the things of the Lord. So God, you could do signs and miracles and wonders among us so that you can do great things so that men and women would come to Christ so that young people would, would find out what it is to be in your presence. Lord, that there would be incredible things that you do because your people find themselves in unity with one another. Lord, I pray you do it here in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. If you're with me, you want that for the Lord, I want you to stand where you are. If you're with me, if you want that for our church, you want that for this generation, would you stand? 
And I want you to lift your hands and I want you to tell God, I want you to ask God, what is it the thing that you need me to do? What do you want me to do? What's my role in this? What is it that I've got to shift? What is it that I've got to change? Would you ask the Lord? Come on, lift your voice and ask the Lord. Father, would you just begin to speak to our heart? Tell us, God, what it is that we've got to do. What do you want to change in me? What's my level of devotion? What's my commitment level, God? Where am I missing in the practice, God, of of serving you and honoring you publicly and privately, God? Whatever it is, Lord, I want to be obedient. I want to follow through so that you could be released to do the things that you want to do. God, in Jesus' name, I pray. I pray that you'd show me what it is for, for my life, Lord, for my family, for my spirit, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. God, I pray that you do it and more among us in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, just like that first century church, we're going to take communion together this morning as we close our service. My prayer is that this, you know, Jesus said it's meant to be a reminder of what he did for us. It's meant to be a reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And it is. But this morning, I want it to be a reminder to us of the power of unity, uniting around the cross, uniting around the body and the blood of the Lord and allowing that to transform us changes the world. So if you have your emblems, if you don't have them, they're right at the back door. You want to grab them. You don't have to be a member of our church to receive communion together. You just need to be a member of the body of Christ. And I would say to you, if you're not a member of the body of Christ, means you're not saved. Now is a good time to get saved. Now is a good time in just a moment to ask the Lord into your heart to forgive your sin. But if you're unwilling to do that, I, I do want to say, sit this out. night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember the body of the Lord. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Do this as often as you drink it to remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till he come. But don't let anybody eat it or drink it unworthily. But let a man examine himself. Make sure things are right with God and then let him eat of the cup, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So I just want to pause for about 30 seconds and I want to invite you to examine yourself. Examine your heart. Make sure there's nothing in the way between you and the Lord. If you've never been saved before, or you've been, it's been a long time, you'd like to give your heart to the Lord, this is your moment. Ask Jesus to come into your heart and forgive your sins and make you new. Father, I pray that you draw everyone. We examine our heart right now that we would be clean. Let there be nothing between us and you. And God, those things that we allow between us, Lord, those sinful things, those temptations that take us, Lord, we give them to you. We confess them and we ask forgiveness and mercy. And we know the promise that we'll receive the mercy we need and the grace we need at the foot of the cross. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this that is your body. Can we lift the body to the Lord, the the bread that represents his body? Father, we thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you that you were broken and bruised for our healing. You were wounded 
stripes upon your back so that we could be healed. So Lord, I just pray you'd be healed right now. Heal allergies, heal diabetes, heal cancer, heal back problems. Lord, heal things that are insurmountable. The things that are impossible with men are possible with God. So Lord, those in this room today that need healing from you, I pray that you would heal in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Let's receive together the bread. cup represents the body of Christ. Can we lift it to, or the, or the blood of Christ? Can we lift it to him? Father, thank you for the blood, Jesus, that you shed on the tree for us. Thank you that it's powerful, that it's mighty, that it still cleanses today. It washes away our sin. Lord, that there's nothing of evil or wickedness that can stand before it. It is the most powerful force in the universe to cleanse us and reconcile us to you. We are made right with God because of the blood of the lamb that was shed for us on Calvary's tree so many years ago. Go. Lord, we don't forget it. We don't take it for granted. God, we, we, we remember and we rejoice in the blood of the lamb that saves our soul and makes us right with God in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Let's remember together as we take the cup. Thank you, God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's lift our hands. Have our worship team lead us in song and then you'll be dismissed. But can we lift our hands and worship the Lord right now? God, we worship your name and we bless. Come on, lift your voice. Come on, church, lift your voice. God, we worship you and we bless you because you are great and mighty and holy and righteous today, God. And we celebrate you. We celebrate your power. We celebrate your mercy. We celebrate your heart, God. Thank you, God, for what you've done. What an awesome God you are. And we worship you today in Jesus' name.